If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're now in week number three of uh, probably around 40 to 50 uh, messages from the Gospel according to Mark. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. O grant us grace, almighty Lord, to read and mark your holy word, its truths with meekness to receive, and by its holy precepts live. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you may be familiar with a book that was written and published in 1989. Uh, It sort of spurred a whole industry of time management, uh, life management books and courses and um, seminars. And the book is entitled The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Powerful Lessons for Personal Change. It's written by Stephen Covey, and you know, to be sure, this is going to be found in the self-help section of the bookstore. You know, how to get your life in order, what you need to do. But you know, God has not only special grace for those who trust in Jesus, but there's also common grace where he sheds to abroad to to all people some some good things and I think there are some good things in this book in particular is this visual illustration of the four quadrants of time management it's a grid and labeled on the side are the words important and not important and across the top is urgent And not urgent. And what this grid, what this matrix does, it allows you to look at what you're doing and make some judgments. Is it urgent and important? Quadrant one in the upper left. Is it rather in the upper right of being not urgent and important? Is it in the lower left or quadrant three, urgent and not important? Or is it quadrant four in the lower right? Not urgent and not important. And I think it's interesting if you think about not urgent and not important, think about how we spend our days. Trivia, chasing the latest news, trying to stay on top of things, things that don't matter. And so there's that not urgent and not important section, but there is indeed an urgent and an important Section And I want us to keep this grid in mind as we listen to and think about a short sermon. Now this will probably go 30 to 35 minutes, but we're going to look at a sermon that can be spoken and heard in less than 10 seconds. Indeed, it takes less than 10 seconds to preach, longer to understand, and a lifetime to apply. We're in our series, Jesus According to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. As we've been saying, 
The Bible is all about Jesus. Jesus makes that claim in Luke chapter 24. And indeed, the Old Testament is Jesus predicted. The Gospels, Jesus revealed. Acts, Jesus preached. The letters, Jesus explained. And Revelation, Jesus expected. Well, why study a gospel? Why are we going to spend the next year in the gospel according to Mark? Well, the Bible tells us one story, but it does it in 66 books. And so we're going to study this book in context because these stories have been selected and arranged for a particular purpose. We're going to look at this gospel because it's foundational to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Well, why are we studying Mark in particular? Well, as I've said before, it's the shortest of the Gospels, 16 chapters. And it's believed to be the earliest of the Gospels, a core Gospel of which uh, Matthew and Luke use extensively. Well, these first few weeks, we need to continue to orient ourselves to this Gospel. And so remember that Mark's theme is found in verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But Mark is organized and purposeful, and he structures his book in a thoughtful, deliberate, and orderly manner. The first half of the book, the first eight chapters, answers the question, who is Jesus? It's got a focus of Jesus as the Christ, the person of Jesus. And the second half answers the question, what did Jesus come to do? The focus is Jesus as the Son of God, the work of Jesus. And whereas the first half climaxes with Peter's confession, answering the question, Who do you say that I am? Peter responds, You are the Christ. The climax of the second half of the book is when the Roman centurion confesses, Truly, this man is the Son of God. Indeed, chapter 8, verses 27 and 29 is the hinge. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And the answer, you are the Christ. We've been uh, learning that uh, Mark is most likely Peter's interpreter. It's, it's the ministry and life of Jesus seen through Peter's eyes, which Mark wrote down. And Mark uses this method of a docudrama, where he, he zooms in on various um, moments in the life and ministry of Jesus, and then he zooms out to get people's reaction and response. And his message, of course, is the gospel. The gospel that is centered upon Jesus. It's about him and it's proclaimed by him. Jesus, the man who is Christ and the Son of God. His message and his mission as we will come to see. We will see that Jesus is, in a word, the king who brings with him the kingdom of God. We've also been saying as we get started that Mark is the shortest catechism. It's an ideal gospel to to study, to know, to own, and not so much to master, but rather to be mastered by. Indeed, the gospel of Mark, or according to Mark, can be viewed rightly as a catechism of sorts. For over the course of 16 chapters, three significant questions and answers are asked and answered. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? That's the big picture of Mark. If you ever get lost, if you ever find yourself not knowing where you are in Mark, come back to. It's about Jesus, who he is, what he came to do, 
and how people should respond to who he is and what he did. Two weeks ago, we looked at verse 1, which served to introduce the theme of Mark. Last week in verses 2 through 13, we saw how our passage portrayed Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the one who was announced by John the Baptist, anointed by the Spirit, acknowledged by the divine voice from heaven, and approved by his testing in the wilderness. Jesus is now ready. He's now prepared for his ministry and his mission. The stage is now set for Jesus to go public. So let's look first at the why, when, and where Jesus begins to preach. Verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus emerges here from a cosmic battle, a battle in the wilderness with none other than Satan, He emerges not as a soldier, although Jesus most certainly does fight. Not as a politician here to improve the community, to get better services to the public. And not indeed as a miracle worker, although indeed that's who he is and what he does. But Jesus emerges first and foremost as a preacher. Jesus came out of the wilderness into Galilee in order to preach. Later in Mark chapter 1, verse 38, I came out to preach. In Luke 4, he says, I've been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, as we heard from Isaiah 61. He goes on to say, I was sent for the purpose of preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knew what he was doing, why he came. No doubt, he knew he came to preach. Now, after John was arrested, after not so much chronologically, but that was the case, but rather at the end of the old and the beginning of the new. Children, if you ever want to answer this question on a Bible test with the right answer, here it is. Who's the last Old Testament prophet? Was it Isaiah? Jeremiah? Ezekiel? Was it um, uh, Malachi? He's last, right? No, John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. It's the end of the old and the beginning of the new. And notice, Mark doesn't give us any details. Why is John in jail? Why has he been arrested? Why is he out of the picture? Well, Jesus had just emerged from a battle And and, uh, John is involved in a battle as well. He had popular acclaim, but yet was opposed. John is the forerunner of Jesus. Indeed, in his ministry, in his arrest, and as we will see later in chapter 6, in his death. In so many ways, John points not to himself. The greatest, as Jesus would say, of, of the one born of man, born to woman. But he knows he must decrease and Christ must increase. He's the forerunner of Jesus in his ministry, in his arrest, and in his death. And we read that Jesus came into Galilee. It's then and there that he proclaims the gospel of God. The gospel being from God and God about God. And the gospel is uh, from God as the source. Well, recall the opening line of Mark's gospel. 
It's an important, significant summary theme. Jesus begins his public ministry, his inaugural sermon of just 15 words. It's a message that it is as simple as it is profound. Now, we said it takes less than 10 seconds to preach, less than 10 seconds to actually listen to. Well, how long did this sermon take to prepare? Not six hours or nine hours or 12 hours the previous week. Not even days. But it took years, decades, centuries to proclaim. Because now, in verse 15, we hear this. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The time for waiting is over. God has made promises that we read in the Old Testament. And the promises are being fulfilled. It's the turning point of history. And children, help me remember this again. The Old Testament is what? Promises made. And the New Testament is promises kept. And as we read in the New Testament, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Galatian church, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God was not late. He was not in a hurry. He was right on time when the fullness of time had come. Jesus came. John looked ahead and said, someone is coming But Jesus announces fulfillment fulfillment, and says the one John looked to is now here. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what he's declaring. This is the declaration of the gospel. The kingdom of God, it's not a location but an activity. It's not a geographical concept, but a dynamic concept, referring to the reign of God over his people and over his world. An Australian theologian sums up the kingdom of God like this. God's people in God's place under God's rule. The kingdom of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's not so much near in time, but rather near in space. Mark is wanting his reader to see the kingdom is right under your nose. It's now at hand because the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come because the king has arrived. And yet we see here the kingdom of God is already And it's not yet. Yes, God has always ruled. There has never been a moment when God is not ruling. But the fallen world, the world that turned away from God and His kindness and His law, that world does not enjoy the blessings of His rule because they are attempting to rule themselves. The kingdom of God is inaugurated but not consummated. In other words, it's begun but it's not yet completed. And we even see this tension as we prayed a few moments ago in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. It's the life that we live between the already of Jesus' first advent 
and the not yet of his second advent, of his return. And there's a tension, and you and I live in the tension. That's why we have to walk by faith and not by sight. Where the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. Jesus' first public sermon begins with an announcement. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. But it ends with a call. In other words, the declaration of Jesus is immediately followed by a demand of Jesus. The demand of the gospel. Now before we look at that in any detail, I think it's important that we see and appreciate the order and the logic of Jesus' sermon. Jesus was purposeful and deliberate. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Semicolon. Repent and believe in the gospel. And what we have here is the order and the logic of the sermon. And it's a grammar lesson here. We have the indicative, a statement, followed by the imperative, a command. And unlike every other religion, every other means by which man has attempted to get to God, to reach God, to be right with God, Christianity begins not with what man has to do, but rather with what God has already done. In other words, Christianity, as I told the men at Fairhaven Rescue Mission on Friday night, is spelled simply D-O-N-E, whereas all the world's religion is spelled D-O. We sang it earlier, it is finished. Jesus' work is accomplished, it's done. And remember the Ten Commandments, They don't begin with, you shall have no other gods before me. Yes, that's the first commandment, but how do the commandments begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The rescue precedes the work. The rescue precedes the the call to obedience. In fact, you have to be freed from slavery in order to obey from the heart with gratitude in a manner that pleases God the Father. But what God has done both in Egypt in AD 33 on a hill outside of Jerusalem and now what God has done and is doing requires a response from man. J.I. Packer, in his magnificent work, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, where he brings together both um, divine sovereignty as well as human responsibility, and he does a magnificent job unfolding the truths of those two things that in our mind can't connect, and yet in God's mind, obviously, are connected. Packer writes this about the gospel. The gospel is a message about God, a message about sin, a message about Christ, and a summons to faith and repentance. In other words, the gospel is never a bare statement of fact without a corresponding call to respond. And what does Jesus say? Repent. Repent. It's the only appropriate response in view of the coming judgment. Repentance In the Greek mind and in the Greek language, it was turning, turning. But in the Hebrew mind, 
and language, it meant direction. And indeed, those two go together. It's a complete change of mind so that direction is changed. I remember hearing somebody speak one time that it's important in life to do a 360. If you're headed down the wrong path, do a 360. I think they meant a 180 because that might be good on the basketball court as you're driving to the hoop. It makes the highlight reel. But repentance is a change of direction, a 180. For those of you in the military, it's a to-the-rear march. Remember that, those of you out there? To-the-rear march. You're headed one direction, and you turn the other direction. It's the message of the Old Testament prophets, especially Malachi. And it's the message of, of John the Baptist. What does he say? Turn, return, come back to Yahweh the Lord. If the kingdom of God has come near and the king himself is already present, then life has to change. It can no longer be the same. No need to repent, you might say. Well, think again. You know, there may be days where you might not be conscious of specific sins here and there. But how about this? Are you ever indifferent to the things of God? Are you ever apathetic to the things toward God? Now, children, apathetic, what does that mean? It means you just don't care. I think if we were to look at our lives pretty closely, uh, there are vast swaths of our day that we may be functional and for all intents and purposes practical atheists where God is just not in our thoughts. Do we need to repent of indifference and apathy toward God? Absolutely. Jesus pulls no punches. His first word is repent. But before you lower your head, before you try to hide, before you try to run away, think with me about this. If you hear the call to repent, to turn from sin, to confess sin, to ask God for help to, to, to no longer sin. If you hear the call to repent, it's the offer of grace. If you hear the call to repent, there's still time left. There will come a time one day when we won't hear the call to repent anymore. That'll be the day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Because every knee and every tongue will be moved. But now, as Scripture says, now is the day of salvation. In the Navy, I remember being officer of the deck and we were getting ready to, to leave um, the harbor in Norfolk and... Um, I got the, the word from the captain to get underway, so we singled up all lines, and then we took in all lines, and I heard the uh, ship's whistle announce that we were underway, and the bosun mate of the watch announced shift colors, and sure enough, looking down the pier was that, was that young sailor running. He missed the ship. He missed the boat. It was too late. He missed ship's movement. Brothers and sisters, if you hear repent, that is good news. That is the offer of grace. There is still 
time left. But notice Jesus doesn't just say repent, but also believe. Not just breathe out, but breathe in. It's the only appropriate response in recognition of the good news, to believe in the gospel. You know, it could say to believe the gospel, uh, to believe in the gospel, to believe it, to trust it, to, to, to acknowledge that what the gospel announces is indeed truth and good news, to rely upon it, to lean upon it. That's why week after week after week, we've got to remind ourselves of the gospel because in our flesh, we forget the gospel and we come up with our own way to get right with God and one another and it's only through the good news of Jesus. So here you have repentance and faith, fraternal twins, not identical, but coming to to birth at the same time. And again, it's like breathing, breathing out of repentance, breathing in of faith. It's two sides of the same coin. It's two wings of a plane. It's the left wing and the right wing. And you've got to have both. A plane cannot fly with one wing. It can with one engine, but not with one wing. And the Puritans, our spiritual ancestors, had this expression. Repentance and faith are the two wings of the bird on which we fly to heaven. Jesus called sinners to repent in in light of coming judgment that we read in Malachi 3, but also to believe the good news of salvation from judgment, as we read last week in Isaiah 40. Repentance is turning our heart away from idols, from those things that grab our attention and our heart, things that we think we've got to have or life just will not be worth living It's turning our heart affections from the idols that we make and create and instead turning our heart affections to Jesus Christ. As I was preparing this message, I I kept thinking to myself, what does it look like to repent and believe? What does it look like? I, I saw this in my mind's eye. I'm turning my back on sin and I'm turning my face to Jesus. Honestly, I'd never had that thought before, and I believe that was just God's kindness and mercy. Turning my back on sin and turning my face to Jesus. The Christian life begins and continues through repentance and faith. It's the two-cycle engine of intake and exhaust. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, when he wrote his first of 95 theses, said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, it was not like NCAA Division I basketball teams of one and done. No, they were there all four years. It's repentance and faith ongoing. And notice the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. There you have it, faith and repentance. And John Calvin, the Swiss reformer who came a little bit later, said this, God assigns to believers a race of repentance, which they are to run throughout their lives. A race of repentance. So how are you doing in the race today? Are you in the race? 
Are you sitting down on the sidelines or are you in the race? I don't know about you, but the only time I, I ran a marathon, 26.2 miles in Washington, D.C., I ran it side by side from start to finish with my best friend and the best man at our wedding. And honest to goodness, there is no way I could have done it without him at my side. And I'm hopeful he could say the same thing about me, but maybe not. But regardless, we needed one another. And what does God do? He saves us and brings us into his church, his community, his new people. And he provides ordinary means of grace um, the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, the prayers, the fellowship of God's people. Brothers and sisters, this is a race that we don't run alone by ourselves, but with one another. And I guarantee you can run longer and faster with someone by your side and look around. God is pleased to bring others alongside of us. Well, the rest of Mark will be an unfolding of people's responses to this announcement and call, this declaration and demand of Jesus. Jesus' initial 15-word sermon forms the heart of his preaching. At the foundation and center of Jesus' preaching ministry is the proclamation both of the arrival of the kingdom of God, that is, of himself, and of the necessity to repent and believe. And that's what Peter does in Acts chapter 2. And that's what Paul does that we see throughout Acts. As they preach repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. So let's end now with two statements about Mark and three short takeaways from this first and shortest sermon from Jesus. First, remember Mark is a catechism. It's the shortest. Three questions and answers. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should we respond to him? And I hope that's helpful. And especially since it's only three questions and answers. Second, Mark is not only a catechism. Mark is a mystery. A mystery. What do I mean? Well, in verse 15, there's the announcement of this kingdom and king. But the first mystery of that is, well, who is this king? Well, we know it's Jesus. We know it's Jesus from verses 1 through 3. But the mystery of his identity will be slowly revealed to people during his earthly ministry. We and any reader of Mark has the advantage. We've got the answer at the beginning, just like one of the Columbo mysteries. The answer is not who done it, it's how am I going to catch him? It's going to unfold before our very eyes. And then mystery number two is what is the nature of this kingdom itself? What is the kingdom like? Well, that's for us, the reader, to discover as we travel through the life and ministry of Mark. Well, what do we learn now about the kingdom of God from this first short sermon from Jesus? Three things. First, the kingdom of God is right under our noses in the person and work of Jesus. You want to know where the kingdom of God is? It's where Jesus is and now by his spirit. Second, the coming of the kingdom of God demands a response. Brothers and sisters, as we've been saying, there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. 
There's a yes answer on the test and there's a no answer on the test. There is not a maybe answer on the test. Our response to Jesus' short sermon, listen to the words, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, is absolutely urgent and important. There is no higher priority than this. This is on a first things order of magnitude. There is no more urgent and important task on our to-do list right now and every moment of our lives. Repent and believe. It's urgent, absolutely urgent, and it's absolutely important. That belongs in quadrant number one. Urgent, important. Third, and finally, the kingdom of God is entered through the door labeled repentance and faith. It's entered by turning away and turning toward. It's entered by turning our heart's affections away from sin, away from the idols that we bow down and worship. And instead, it's turning our hearts' affections to Jesus. It's through repentance and faith that the kingdom of God is entered. As we are subdued and conquered by the love of God the Father made known to us in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, congregation, remember this. Scripture is very clear. Repentance and faith are gifts from the generous hand of God. And so why don't you, why don't I, why don't we ask Him to give us what we need? As Jesus Himself says elsewhere, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give good gifts to those who ask Him. The gifts of repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that our days and our lives are filled with incessant messages, announcements, requests, whether it's background noise or people coming to us, we are overwhelmed at times. But Father, there is one message that we absolutely need to hear. It's the message that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Father, that is urgent and that is important. Would you enable us to hear that call, not only for folks coming to faith in Christ from unbelief, but for those of us who continue to walk with Jesus. Oh Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Father, may the story of our lives, the story of walking by faith and not be sight, may it indeed be breathing out and breathing in until that great day ahead when we will no longer be plagued by sin and therefore we will no longer have to ask forgiveness of sin. Oh, Father, we long to be in your presence fully. 
Give us grace and strength to make it there with joy. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.